All right, if you have your notebook, grab your notebook and look at the back half of it. We're going to go through the five build disciplines again. And if you have these in front of you, you'll realize, well, I already know these. Why are we going through these again? We've gone through these six or seven times now, and, and we are, uh, we get this, we know this, and we know that we know this. We know that. Um, what's happening here is we are just reminding ourselves every week of things we already know because reminding ourselves of things we already know just helps those things sink more deeply into our mind and into our heart. We want to keep these things in front of us. Um, spend a little bit more time talking about details of our prayer life and our heart in, in just a minute, but let's remind ourselves what these five disciplines are. And everything starts with our heart. It doesn't take you very long from reading, starting in Genesis and moving yourself left to right. You see that the heart is addressed very early in Scripture. It is addressed all the way through Scripture. It is addressed through to the end of Scripture. We want to be men who shepherd our heart because everything flows out from that. Jacob is going to be teaching the ladies this morning from uh, Proverbs 4. And the message there is that we need to guard our hearts diligently because from our hearts, flow the springs of life. And um, that is what we need to do. Everything flows out of our hearts. It flows into our homes. It flows into our work. It flows into our ministry. It flows into everything else. So we want to be men who remember how important it is for us to guard our heart. And the, the main way we guard our heart is by meeting with the Lord, by reading his revelation of himself to us in his word, and by communicating back to him in prayer. And uh, we want to do that again and again and again as often as we can, as regularly and as consistently as we can. Uh, the first benefit, the first place that receives the benefit from that is our home, the people that we live with, whether it is our wives or our children or our parents or our siblings. They are the people who get to reap the first fruits, the first benefits of what we do, and we know that. But we know that our conversations, our thoughts, our interactions with the people that God put us in, in community with are going to be much more fruitful when we meet alone with the Lord. I had a conversation this week with one of my young adult children, and it was on a day in which um, I did meet with the Lord, and things did go well, and I had poured out my heart, and I had investigated his word. And it was a really good conversation. I've had other conversations with my kids where I wasn't as well prepared, and they weren't nearly as fruitful. All the right words were there, but there just was no traction. There was no leadership. There was no shepherding. There was no help. There was no guidance. Um, so all of our conversations, all of our interactions truly are enhanced when we guard our heart. So are the ministries that we, we serve in at this church. Um, whether we're in a formal position as a servant in Next Generation Ministries or as a small group leader, or whether it's an informal opportunity where we just invest in people, in conversation, and other things. Those conversations are more rich, they're more informed, they're more effective, they're more fruitful when we're guys who are shepherding our heart. When we find ourselves here at Grace Bible Church, we're finding ourselves as men who want to pursue the deacon qualifications. We want all to be men who are qualified to serve in deacon roles. We want to run after that. And the best way you do that is by caring for your heart. Um, you could pay attention to the outward shape and outward appearance of what it looks like to be a deacon. And you could try very hard to be a man who is not double-tongued, 
you could try very hard to be a man who's, who's a man of dignity and every other thing. If you're not addressing your heart first, um, you'll find out that you're just a shell on the outside. All of those things are the outflowing of a guy who's, who's caring for his heart. The same thing is true about a man who pursues a knowledge of God's word and increased understanding of his word. If it flows out of his own heart shepherding, it's going to be rich and sweet. God's word in his hand is going to be a sweet, effective tool that will help shape and guide people, will lead them towards more holiness of life. It won't be this heavy brick that he uses to hit people over the head, which is what it would be if he was not shepherding his heart well. So let's keep those things in front of us really, really well. Last week we talked a little bit about um, signs, five signs that we may not be shepherding our heart very well. We talked about them and we talked about how one sign that you're not shepherding your heart well is, is you're indifferent to ongoing sin in your life. The second sign that you might not be shepherding your heart too well is that we tend to justify sin in one area of our life by looking at another area of our life that's going pretty well. Another sign that we, we see that we might not be shepherding our heart very well is when we actually find pleasure and enjoyment and desire in sin. Another indication that we're not shepherding our heart well is that the reason why we run from sin is because we're embarrassed of being exposed or we would be afraid of the consequence. And another sign that we're not shepherding our heart well is that, that um, we're indifferent or we're hard, we're insensitive or unresponsive to the discipline of the Lord, the chastening of the Lord. So we went through that last week. And uh, what I wanted to talk about today was, for just a few minutes, is how to use our time in prayer to prepare us to stay away from that kind of weak heart shepherding. And I want to look at three things, and I want to focus on the third of those. But as we consider um, a desire to have strong heart shepherding, three things I've found in my prayer life that help me. Uh, One is to always remember my former condition. Remember my former condition. Second thing that's very, very helpful is to remember the atoning work of Christ that corrected my former condition into who I am today. And the third thing is to remember the sanctifying work of Christ. So remember my former condition, remember the atoning work of Christ, and remember the the sanctifying ongoing work of Christ. As you consider how to remember your former condition Uh, There is one passage that I have found to be very, very helpful in doing that. And um, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And that is one passage that is worth committing to your memory. It's very sweet. It's very articulate. It's very clear. It's very accurate in the kind of people that we used to be. It talks about how we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And we were walking in those sins. And it was a very active walk. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the course of this world, according to the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. Reading through that and speaking that back to the Lord and describing who I used to be is very helpful in helping me understand my former condition. The reason why I do that and the reason why I found that to be helpful is because it helps me understand the different person that I am today um, from who I used to be. As I look at the way I used to be running in blindness and darkness, of understanding and hardness of heart. It's very helpful to to me to help me see that I am not that kind of person anymore. 
I don't dwell on that, but it's very helpful to keep that in front of me, that that is who I used to be, that is not who I am today, because of, secondly, the atoning work of Christ. Very helpful when your battle against sin, the battle to shepherd your heart well, to remember what Christ has done to save you from who you used to be. Remember that he went to the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, to become sin on our behalf. He actually took upon himself everything that we would do centuries and millennia later. He bore it in his own body on the cross. And he suffered the torment. He suffered the agony. He suffered the pain from that um, so that we could be redeemed. We could be purchased away from who we were. I want to focus on the third area that really helps me when I think about shepherding my heart and being effective in my own heart shepherding. And that is to remember the sanctifying work of Christ. What he has done. After he suffered in my place on the cross, he, scripture says he yielded up his own body to death. He actually gave up his own life. He laid down his life. And he laid down his life for, for one reason, and that's so that he could, be, he could take his life back up again. The three members of the Godhead collaborated together to raise Jesus' body from the dead. And this is really, really, really significant for us. The reason why that's significant is because when Jesus was raised from the dead, he conquered death and he conquered the sin that caused that death. And Romans 6 is full of the benefits that a believer has because of Christ's resurrection from the dead. My favorite verse in that that entire chapter is verse 4 where as Christ has been raised from death to life, he's conquered death, I now have the ability to walk in newness of life. So it's very helpful for me to remember that. Very, very helpful. As I think about the sanctifying work of Christ in my life, it's very helpful for me to remember that, that in my rebirth, in my regeneration as a believer, I have been recharacterized to be a person with a new character who is now designed by God to be, to be fulfilled and to be satisfied by the things that are pleasing to God. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures evermore. I've been recharacterized by God to derive pleasure, to derive joy from being near to him. That wasn't my former condition. That wasn't the case for me formerly. But to remember that I now have a constitution that, that is designed to be most satisfied and most joyful when I'm near the Lord. That helps me in my heart shepherding as opportunities for sin present them to myself every day, every hour of every day. So it helps me to remember that I have a new design or a new character. Something else that's very helpful for me is to remember that we have the opportunity, and we have the privilege to demonstrate our love for Christ by our obedience to him. John 14, 15, John 15, 14. Uh, the one who obeys Christ is, is the one who loves him. We demonstrate our love for him by our obedience to him. It's very helpful for me in my prayer life to cry out to the Lord for his grace to be able to actually demonstrate that love for him through obedience. As I, as I do that in my prayer life, it makes me more sensitive when the opportunities for obedience are in front of me. It makes me able to see more clearly um, what is at stake in front of me. I have an opportunity to exalt Christ and I have an opportunity to please him and to demonstrate my love for him by obeying him. It makes me much more sensitive to those opportunities when they arise. 
And the last thing that really helps me in my prayer life as I, I ponder how to shepherd my heart well is to know that there is a peace that comes across me, that comes across a believer when they, they obey Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 talks about the chastening of the Lord and after that is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's a righteous living in which a person is righteous and they're living at peace with God. If I remind myself in, in time of prayer that, Lord, there is peace with you when I obey you, when I walk in repentance from sin, there is a joy, there is a nearness to you that I would not have otherwise, that again makes me more sensitive to, to the opportunities that are in front of me to to shepherd my heart well and to recognize them. So those are just a few things that um, we want to keep in front of us. Those are things that are helpful to me. I pray and I ask that the Lord that any of that would be helpful and encouraging to you. So well, let's get started here. Uh, if you're um, if you've looked at your calendar, we we are we are totally uh, disregarding the calendar at this point uh, for what's scheduled for today. Um, Jacob was supposed to teach last time and, and his schedule didn't allow him to and he's really tight on on Saturdays and so what I'm basically doing is I'm taking a bunch of the ones that were supposed to be coming up and I'm pushing them up to the front uh, so what we're actually doing today if you look at your handout on we're starting discipline three today on the ministry and that wouldn't even be coming up I think until like February 20th um, so we're going a little bit out of order but um You'll, you'll, you'll get everything we have planned for you. It's just we have to kind of move it around a little bit to accommodate the schedule. Um, so what I really want you to do is take your Bibles. Let's, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to transition to this third discipline of a faithful leader. As we've talked about over and over, I mean, guys, the whole idea is that you would be able to be, you know, bumped in the middle of the night, in the middle of your sleep, and and somebody says, you know, what are you supposed to be disciplined about? And you'd go, hard household ministry. (laughs) You would just just know this is, you know, we want this to be ingrained in you. And and the whole reason we're reviewing it so much, you know, you, you even heard Scott in one sense, you know, give the apologetic for... Why do we keep doing this? It's because you and I forget. I can remember when I was I was a I was a pastor, elder at Camelback Bible Church before I was here. I was a youth pastor, and I can remember thinking, if I'm an elder, and I if I'm not disciplined with these things, and I'm an elder, am I just to assume that every man is has got this? I, if elders forget this, everybody forgets this. And I, I just remember thinking as God was beginning to lay it on my heart um, that I, I didn't want to just confine my ministry to a certain segment of the population of a, of a church, the, the junior high and high school kids. I, I kept wanting to, dads, where are you? You know, I want... I kept thinking, if I, if, if God, if you ever put me in a situation where I'm eldering with other men and, it, and it's over the whole church, we will not assume that men understand this. You just won't. Because uh, it's like being a, a, a little stick of butter on a hot slide in July. Um, it only goes one direction. 
And we have to fight in the opposite direction by the Spirit's power, by, by God's grace in us, with his truth opened up before us. And even then, it's like swimming upstream, right? Even then, sometimes you're just swimming so hard and you're looking at the shoreline next to you and you're not making any progress, it seems. But if you stop, what happens? You go the wrong direction. Um, this takes discipline. And so, in, in, in that sense, there is no apology for reviewing this. Because we will never graduate from the need to, as men, just exhort one another and say, we've got to shepherd our hearts well, and we've got to make sure that the first line of impact is our homes and those household relationships. And then we also step outside our households into the church for gospel ministry and outside the church into our work world where we live um, with the gospel. And so as we do that in transition, thinking about what is gospel ministry, there are, there are uh, some great passages in the New Testament that center around the Apostle Paul and, and uh, where he gets very autobiographical, not just about his life, but about what his gospel ministry is like. You can read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians where he's constantly defending himself to the Corinthians about why he does what he does, who he is. And another one of those um, sections in Scripture is 1 Thessalonians 1 and most of chapter 2. So what I want to do is I want to read it to you. I'm going to start chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 12, and then we'll just make some observations about gospel ministry from that section. Why don't you follow along as I read. Verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, and that's Silvanus is uh, another way of uh, spelling and uh, referring to Silas. Um, This is Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey. Um, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us, what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised uh, from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, 
having so fond an affection for you, we were well uh, pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we um, as we turn the corner here into the third discipline that we want to focus on, we pray, God, that you would help us to... Um, really understand your word um, correctly and thoroughly. Thank you for this um, snapshot that Paul gives us of what it was like in A.D. 51 to um, be preaching the gospel across the the European continent and um, the coastline of Greece, um, Macedonia. Lord, we thank you just that we can watch him labor uh, to bring the gospel to people who never heard it and would not hear it unless someone like him went. And pray, God, that um, as we seek to be men who take care of our hearts well and our households well, that as we step out into the work world you have us in and um, into our neighborhoods, Lord, that we would um, carry out the gospel and the gospel ministry in a way that would be pleasing to you. Lord, help us to think rightly about what gospel ministry is and to correct where we have wrong thoughts about gospel ministry, to throw those aside. And so we submit ourselves under you. We ask for you to meet with us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it's late to AD 50, maybe AD 51. Uh, Paul, on the, if you, in fact, why don't you just turn back to Acts 17 for just a moment. I want to show you the, the, the bigger context here of what's going on. Acts 17 is the uh, section of the second missionary journey that he is on with Silas and Timothy. And Paul suffered terrible, and Silas suffered terrible injustices in chapter 16 in Philippi. Uh, They were thrown in jail. They were beaten without any kind of um, trial. The earthquake happened. The jailer is converted. The leaders of the city of Philippi realize what they did, and they beg them to leave. And Paul and Silas, at the end of chapter 16, leave um, after encouraging the believers. It was at that point that they probably left Luke in Philippi, and Luke probably stayed there for five years. Chapter 17, they traveled through two cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they made their way to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to what Paul always did, he went into the synagogue and he reasoned with them from the scriptures for three Sabbaths. Most likely those were consecutive Sabbaths. That doesn't mean that he didn't stay there longer than three Sabbaths, but we do know that he was in this city of Thessalonica for at least three weeks. And he was explaining and giving evidence of that Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he kept saying things like, this is this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So he's trying to connect the Old Testament dots on who Messiah is to the dot that is a man from Nazareth named Jesus. And he's saying, he's the one. 
And the big contrast is in verse 4. Some of them, and the them there are the Jews in the synagogue, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So what you saw was a few of the Jews believing and a lot of Gentiles believing. And the Jews, in verse 5, became jealous, seeing that, oh my goodness, all these Gentiles are listening to this tribe from this man and uh, are being more influenced by him than they are by the synagogue message. And so they took along some wicked men from the marketplace. Okay, so Jews would have hated to even step into the marketplace. In fact, when they came back, they would have had to wash themselves and wash their hands and go through all kinds of ceremonial junk to make themselves what they thought would be you know, ritually pure then. But they had no trouble going into the marketplace to find wicked men to start a mob. And they set the whole city in an uproar and they started attacking the house of Jason, which is probably where they were meeting. And they say things like verse six, these men who have upset the world have come here. Our world has been turned upside down by this preacher. And in fact, it's even treasonous, verse 7. They're saying that there's another king, Jesus, when there's really only Caesar. That's what the Jews are saying. Um, They stirred up the crowd, verse 8. And they received a pledge from Jason that there wouldn't be any more trouble. And then at night, they sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So you get out of jail in Philippi. Your back is beaten, swollen with rods. You travel on horseback probably for three days through Amphipolis, Apollonia, to Thessalonica. You get there. There's another mob coming after you, and you have to leave in the middle of the night to go to the next city to preach the gospel. And that's gospel ministry. Who wants to sign up? That's gospel ministry. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That doesn't seem to fit, does it? Um. He's there for three Sabbaths. Most likely he was there for more than three weeks. So what does gospel ministry look like? That's what I want to do with this lesson. I've got 11 different statements about what gospel ministry looks like. We'll just run through as much as we can get to. So here's the first one. Number one, gospel ministry reveals God's prior electing love. So go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And verses 4 and 5 are some of the probably most surprising statements that I think you might ever come across in scripture because it just is counterintuitive to what you would think somebody would say about election. Um, Let me show you that this flows out of his prayer. He's giving thanks to God in verse two. So he's continually giving thanks for these new believers in Thessalonica and he kind of gives these three dimensions to his thankfulness to God. Um, they're, They're found in these ING verbals. We give thanks continually to God for all of you. Here's the first ING, making mention of you in our prayers. That's the form of his thankfulness. It it takes the form of prayer. And then we give thanks, verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Uh, This is uh, the motivation for his thankfulness. He sees that they're growing. How many weeks was he with them? How old are these believers? They are brand spanking new at at, at the minimum three weeks old in Christ maybe a couple months maybe at the most but they're growing and he's we give thanks 
knowing something, verse 4. It's this, brethren, beloved by God, he chose you. We know that he chose you. That's the ground for his thankfulness. But I'm so thankful to you, God, because I know you chose them. Now, Paul knows God's sovereign electing love of the Thessalonian believers. How? How does he know God chose them? Verse 5 explains how he knows. For, because, he says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. His answer is not a theological answer. Here's how I know God chose you. It's because, and then he spells out some theological answer, but he actually spells out a gospel ministry methodological answer. Here's how I know God chose you. Paul says that how the gospel came to them is how he knows they are chosen by God. How the gospel came to them is how he knows they are chosen by God. The manner in which the gospel came to them when he was with them is how he knows they are chosen of God. Paul makes an appeal to his gospel ministry when he was among them to say how he knows that they are chosen. How does Paul know God's sovereign choice of them? Well, it was revealed through how his gospel ministry went while he was among them. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That's how I know God chose you. Let's flesh this out a little bit more. He says in verse 5 that the gospel did indeed come to them in word. It just didn't only come to them in word. When did Paul ever preach in the book of Acts? Or when did he ever do gospel ministry in the book of Acts and not use words? He always used words. We always use words. The gospel, Do not be deceived into thinking that the... What is that silly statement? I hope I'm not going to... I'm going to probably step on a toe somewhere. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Guys, that is, is not found in the pages of scripture. Gospel ministry is words. Faith comes from, no, it comes from watching good deeds being done in your community. No, it doesn't. That, that's not to poo-poo good deeds being done and doing things and acts of justice and things like that. It's not to poo-poo that. But do not deceive yourself into thinking that it's, you can do gospel ministry and you don't have to have words. You do have to have words. You didn't get saved without words being spoken to you. Why would you deprive somebody of words that would save them? Side note. I don't need to go on that. That's okay. Um, Paul always used words. But what Paul says here is that the gospel came to them not only in words, but it also came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit and it came with full conviction. And that's a very surprising statement because of what he means by it. What is that statement? It came not just in words only, but it came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit and it came with full conviction. What is, he, what is that statement? It's actually a description of him and Silas and Timothy. It's a description of his ministry to them. You say, well, how do you know that? That that's how his ministry came to them. Because by the following clause at the end of it, look at this. The gospel didn't come in word only, but it came in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we were. So that tells you what that statement is defining. It came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit, and it came with full conviction. You know what kind of men we were. Isn't that interesting? 
The gospel ministry came to you in power. It came in with the Holy Spirit and it came with full conviction. You know what kind of men we were. It doesn't describe the gospel. Does the gospel come in power? Yes. Does the gospel come with the Holy Spirit? Yes. Does the gospel come and bring conviction of sin? Yes. Very true. That's not what's being taught here, though. It's the right theology, but it's the wrong passage. What's being taught here is the kind of men that Paul proved to be while he was among them. What kind of men were they? They were men who had power from God. And they were men who had the Holy Spirit. And they were men who were fully convinced about what it was they were doing. That's what he says. The gospel did not come merely just in words. They weren't just announcement makers. They were announcement. They were proclaimers. They were heralds. But the gospel also came in the men of power and men who had the spirit of God and men who were fully convinced about what they were and what they were doing. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. It's a very interesting verse. Scott? Yeah. I have a question for that. Please. Do you think part of how the believers knew that, uh, part of how they could be assured of their election was by the type of men that God sent to share the gospel with them? Yeah, would you have ever thought that idea? That is exactly what he's saying. What he's saying, though, is that's how I know that God, that you're the beloved chosen ones of God, by the kind of interaction, the kind of way ministry happened when we were with you. Let me flesh that out a little bit for you. That's Paul's point. It's how he knows that they are chosen of God. And it's this. When there is gospel ministry like this among unbelievers, where there are servants who are relying on God's power, where there are servants proclaiming the message who are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and when there are servants there preaching the gospel who are fully convinced that this is what must be proclaimed, God then shines his light on where his electing love is. How does it come to fruition? How do you know where his electing love is? When sinners believe. You don't know it before. But who believes? You see it. In stark contrast, let's think of the opposite. Where there is gospel ministry that relies on human power. And where there is gospel ministry, quote unquote, that takes place with human cleverness and not the spirit of God. And where there is uh, gospel ministry where the primary motive for doing it is greed. How does that reveal God's electing love? It doesn't. You probably don't even have the right gospel in preaching that. So how does God reveal in time where his sovereign saving choice is? It's where gospel servants go out with the words of the gospel, but not just with the words of the gospel. They go out with his power. They go out with his spirit and they go out with full conviction of what they are doing. And God in those circumstances loves to reveal his sovereign electing love for sinners through that kind of ministry. That's what Paul is saying. I know, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Here's how I know. The, the gospel didn't come to you in words only. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we were. 
He doesn't say, um, the God, he's not talking about the gospel. He doesn't say the gospel came to you, not just in word only. Um, it, came in, it came in power and with, with the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know the way that the gospel is. He's talking about the kind of men. That's what he's continually talking about in chapter 1 and chapter 2, is the kind of men that they were when they were with the Thessalonians. So what does gospel ministry look like? Number one, gospel ministry reveals God's prior electing love. Guys, what, what you and I are supposed to be about as gospel servants in the lives of others is absolutely shocking and weighty and stunning. What does God want to do in this world? He made in, history, in eternity past sovereign electing choices of who he's going to save. How do they come to fruition? When believe, uh, sinners believe in time, how do you know who they are? The ones who believe. How does that happen? I tell you what, gospel ministry needs to take place. And the right kind of men need to go and preach the gospel. What kind of men? Uh, they need to be speaking words. They need to speak the words of the gospel. But they need to be men who are concerned about where their power comes from. They need to be men who are concerned to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And men who are fully convinced about what it is there to do. What's at stake? What's at stake in gospel ministry is whether or not God's electing love is revealed. Um, okay. Yeah. Have a question. Please. Um, you said in time. Yeah. Uh, I know that missionaries that go yeah. with this heart, mm-hmm. they may not see in their generation That's right. or in their life that That's right. happen. That's right. How would you respond to that? Yeah, that, but that still is extremely pleasing to the Lord. Um, what but, old, but you're not saying you have to see the electing love in order to know that this is okay. Great example in the Old Testament is the ministry of Jeremiah, who was commanded by God to go, set apart by him, commissioned to go. You tell them this. And there's no evidence anywhere, really, of any fruitfulness. So there's, there are many other things that are at stake in gospel ministry. One of them is he wants to reveal his sovereign electing love in time. But there are other things. He just wants to have his message proclaimed whether or not they listen to I, I just want to make sure. That that's a good clarification. Yeah, that, that we don't have to see that to know that that's, that's right. We, we may send two couples into a tribe and see nothing. And um, in terms of a... a a saving faith that that begins. It, it may be the next generation that does. How many times did this happen, even in the continent of Africa, um, where men would go in and 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 penetrate to the heart of Africa? Uh, David Livingstone felt this way. That he he wrote oftentimes in his journal that he would he, he just marveled at how he would get into the belly of Africa from South Africa and make his way all looking for the source of the Nile. And um, preaching the gospel as he went, and, and he would find evidence of the slave trade in the heart of Africa, and he was he was he was brokenhearted that that lost sinful rebellious man would be more driven by his greed to go enslave other humans and travel all the way into the dangerous heart of Africa than than gospel ministers would be willing to go in, and he would go and he wouldn't see much fruit of anything, but he constantly wrote and said. It'll be the next generation that will come behind. Uh, 
And that's how he viewed his life. I'm going to go, I'm going to cut a path for them. And if I don't see any fruit and I go as far as I can go and I die and my blood is shed, they will come behind me and they will preach the gospel. And how many times that happens in Asia, uh, in all parts of the world, in Russia, in the former Soviet Union? Um, the Akala tribe. In what? The Akala tribe. Jim Elliot. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Great. <clears throat> yeah. But we go. <clears throat> your workplace may be no different. Um, your neighborhood may be no different. The gospel ministry looks this way. You, you need to be thinking about what kind of man am I proving to be? That's what Paul says. You know what kind of men we prove to be. What kind of man are you? It depends on what kind of man you are as you step out. That's why we focus on, first, the heart and your household, because what kind of men you are in gospel ministry matters. It matters, right? Number two, gospel ministry results in fearless, joyful, and exemplary imitators. Or maybe we could say it produces fearless, joyful, exemplary imitators, perhaps. Verses 6 and 7. Verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul lived his life in such an alignment with the Lord that to imitate him, he said, was to actually be imitating the Lord. That's not because he is the Lord. But it's because he lined himself up so much with the Lord that if you were imitating him, you were imitating uh, the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ, he said. How did they imitate Paul and Silas and Timothy in the, and the Lord Jesus? Look at verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in this way. Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is the most accurate picture of what gospel ministry probably looks like over most of the world, throughout the world. There is often tribulation where the gospel is preached. I mean, after all, what are we doing? Think about what we're doing, guys. Here's what you're not doing. You are not um, on Main Street in Disneyland with hungry people around you, and you're not selling cookies. Everybody wants what you have there if you're selling cookies. Everybody's happy to see you. People flock to you. That's not what we are doing in this world. What are we doing in this world? We are running behind enemy lines, preaching to rebels who are headed for judgment. What? What are we preaching to them? That there's a king coming and he will crush you eternally. But he has a pardon for you right now if you will defect to his side. If you'll repent and believe. And that is a message in this world and in your life right now that's bound to cause you to face some trouble. Okay? There's much tribulation that comes. And if we live in a pocket of the world in a season of time where there's been a lot of tolerance, uh, it's, it's fading quickly. And notice that um, when we receive the gospel in tribulation, what it says here uh, for the, the Thessalonians, they received it in much tribulation with sadness, with despair. What does it say? With joy. In the Holy Spirit, not their joy, but in the joy of the Holy Spirit. The trouble or the tribulation that they're experiencing, it can't touch the joy that the Holy Spirit brings. 
My joy is, my version of joy, the, the Scott version of joy, um, easily is chased away by trouble. That's what I found in my life. Um, but not the Spirit's joy. Sinners will quite frequently receive the word in the midst of tribulation, and yet there is a joy that they have that is not of this world, right? And so as a result, verse 7, what happened to them? Well, this is the real result. You received it with much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you actually became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Those are the regions that surround um, Thessalonica. Thessalonica is in the, the region of uh, the province of Macedonia, and Achaia is below it. Um, so word was spreading. So they're, now they're not just imitating Paul and Silas and Timothy and the Lord. They are now becoming an example to others. So get this, Paul was the one who came. They believed and they imitated him. But now on the other side, they've become examples to others. Do you have that kind of view of gospel ministry that you're not just thinking of the disciple that you're pouring yourself into. You actually have to be thinking beyond them that they need to be ready to be an example to others. Um, how were they exemplary to others? They were exemplary with the joy in the midst of the trouble. As they were hanging on to the word of God, they received it. So again, guys, we're, we're in a war zone and rebels against our king surround us on every side. In fact, we used to be one of them, but we defected, right? And these rebels in this world that you work with and go to school with and live in your neighborhood, if Jesus came again and they had the chance to, they would kill him too. But God made sovereign choices in eternity past. What he was going to do, that he would save rebels. Well, how will they come to life? How will they come to the surface? Well, men of power and men of Holy Spirit and men with full conviction of what his mission is about will run behind those enemy lines, preaching words, but not just words only. And there will be a lot of trouble as rebels defect and repent and believe. But then there will also be this joy in the midst of all of that trouble behind enemy lines. And that kind of life will become an example for others who believe. What is gospel ministry? Gospel ministry results in fearless, joy, joyful, and exemplary imitators. Number three, gospel ministry is multiplied quickly by new believers. Paul talked about how they lived exemplary lives in verse 7. And then from these brand new believers, the word of the Lord blasted forth in verse 8 like a trumpet sound across the land. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That, that verb sounded forth is like a trumpet sound being blasted forth. And, and again, how, 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 how long have they been in Christ? At, at a minimum three weeks. So we're talking like a month, maybe two. They're so young in the, in the Lord and they are so unashamed. So unashamed. You know, if you're a very quiet person, kind of a reserved person, very shy person, don't play the trumpet. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a sound. It's not an instrument for the shy. If you don't want people to look your way, don't pick up a trumpet. <laughs> right? Um, it's a sound. It's meant to announce. It's meant to say, hear. And that's what they were like. Um, 
verse 8, Macedonia and Achaia, those surrounding provinces. Um, but they even went beyond that as examples and or as in uh, their proclamation even went beyond that. It was very thorough. In every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Word of these believers went forth in all places. To what extent? Verse 8, to this extent, so that we have no need to say anything. Who said that? Who's the one who said we have no need of saying anything? The Apostle Paul. Can you imagine living your life in such a way as a new believer that Paul would go, no need for me to go over there and announce anything? But that's what happened. That's pretty amazing. They brought um, Paul to a point where he was like, well, I guess we don't have to go through the rest of that area. We'll just find another place because they announced so thoroughly their faith in God. But here's what's interesting. The gospel took full advantage of the zeal of those new believers. And gospel ministry took advantage of the proximity that those new believers had to their surrounding lost world. Um, do you know the best time to capitalize on evangelism is with somebody who's just a brand new believer? I don't know if, if you can think back, uh, if, if, if you had a kind of uh, a conversion that maybe was later in life and you were steeped in the world and then you got saved. Um, you were so, I mean, you were still in enemy territory. At least we all are in one sense. Um, but you still have so many unbelieving connections because that's just who you were. And that is an amazing moment as a new believer, as a young believer, to capitalize on. Start preaching the gospel. If, if you have the privilege to ever disciple somebody who's come to Christ, who's brand new, then one of the first things out of your mouth is you tell everybody. You don't want to start a life of being ashamed. Just open your mouth and tell everybody. Everybody around you is an unbeliever. You came from the world. Speak time to capitalize on encourage new believers to sound forth what they know they don't need to be able to articulate the doctrines of grace they don't need to be able to articulate trinitarian theology they just need to say do you know what god did to save you here's what i do know and just tell them to open their mouth say what you do know and the gospel will quickly multiply what is gospel ministry gospel ministry is multiplied quickly by new believers Number four, gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. It labors for nothing short of repentance. Verse nine, there's a report that's going out. They themselves, those people in all of those areas, they're reporting to us or they're reporting about us, Paul says. What's the, what are they reporting? What kind of reception we had with you? Now just full stop and just think about that. What, what, what is getting the, the, the other people's attention in those provinces? Here's the report, Paul. We, we got this report. It's about you. It's about what kind of reception you had with them. It's, what kind, it's how you were welcomed. That's what the idea of reception is there. That's part of the report. You were welcomed by these people. You had relationship with these people. You were received by them. And, that's not all that went out, and here's what else they reported. How you turned to God from idols. So two things were going on in this report. Paul, you were really welcomed by these Thessalonians. And they repented. They repented from their dead idols to a living God. 
So guys, don't settle for merely being received by unbelievers or thought well of by unbelievers or to be welcomed by unbelievers. But we have to be eager for this. We have to be eager for their repentance. Um, this made me think of our two families, the Cans and the Dodds, in um, the Doe tribe in uh, the village of Mare Roro. Right now, that tribe is very receptive. They have welcomed and are welcoming those two families into their lives. They're unbelievers. And they're welcoming them in. And to that, we say what? It's amazing. Praise God. Are we done? Why are we even there? That they might what? Repent. See, gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. Do you need to be received by them? Yeah, that's really helpful. But so that they will repent. Okay? What if um, your children welcome you into their life, receive you well, but, but they have not repented? Is that satisfying to you? Still go to bed at night with a broken heart, right? Um, gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. If they don't receive you, there's no chance for repentance coming as you preach to them, right? But if they receive you but never repent, you remain brokenhearted. So what is gospel ministry? Gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. Number five, gospel ministry results in a desire for God above all else. Look at verse nine. They report how you turned, how you repented from idols to serve a living God and true God. And you turned to wait for his son from heaven to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Do you see how Paul describes their repentance? What did the repentance look like? I just want to serve God and I'm waiting for Jesus. Serving God the Father, waiting for Jesus. Life for them right now is occupied with two persons, God the Father and God the Son. And two activities directed to them. I just want to serve him, worship him, be faithful to him, and I'm waiting for him. That's what repentance results in and what the true gospel ministry results in. Um, Piper has made 1 Peter 3.18 uh, very, uh, it's meaning very clear to us. He talks about uh, what's the goal of the gospel. It's, it's getting God. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He died to bring us to God. That's the gospel. And that's what's going on here. They repented and they just want God. They're just serving the Father and they're waiting for the Son. So your gospel ministry needs to make it clear that the believer primarily gets upon repentance, not new friends. You're going to get new friends. But you're not primarily going to get even a new life. You're going to get that. Repentance does not primarily bring to you a better marriage. You might get that. Or greater success. You might get that as well in whatever it is you're doing. But rather what gospel ministry makes clear is this. Upon repentance, the believer has a desire for God. Wants him above anything else. Everything else.
If somebody were to ask you today, what are you doing? You're a believer, what are you doing? You could say, serving God and waiting for Jesus. That's what I'm doing. That would be a great answer. What does it mean to be a believer? It means to serve God the Father and wait for Jesus. How did you get that way? I repented. Who is this Jesus we wait for? Verse 10, I love this. He's described. Um, He's the one um, from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Think about that. He's from heaven, but he died. He's from heaven, but but he's been raised from the dead. From great heights to a horrific depth in a grave, but he's been raised from the dead. It's Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. His wrath is coming for the rest of the rebels on earth, and he will pour out that wrath at his coming. And the message of the true gospel says that we live among those wrath-deserving people. God's bringing that wrath, but Jesus died and was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he has already saved us from his coming wrath. How? Well, God poured it out on him at the cross in our place. As we preach the gospel to rebels, as we preach to them to repent so that they won't be crushed in that coming wrath, we'll probably suffer a little tribulation behind enemy lines, but the gospel expands it anyway. God reveals his sovereign saving choice. Believers trumpet their faith in the Lord with joy. Deep repentance towards God takes root, and in their repentance they find they have this desire for God above all other things. What is gospel ministry? It results in a desire for God above all else. Number six, gospel ministry doesn't lose courage in the face of opposition. We hit chapter two. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. The fact that Paul had just been in jail and been beaten in the prior city. I mean, can you think about that? I mean, imagine we, we do a men's conference and we say, I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Jim. Um, where's he from? Well, he's, he just got out of jail in Nevada. Uh, what happened? Well, he was preaching the gospel and um, they didn't like it. In fact, he shouldn't have been in jail and he was abused horribly in jail and he's here today to, to preach to us. We don't even have a category for such a thing. And this is the way Christianity started in the world. From the Apostle Paul. The fact that Paul was in jail does not mean that he did something wrong in the preaching of the gospel. Or that it was a waste of time. He doesn't say that our coming to you, it wasn't in vain, it wasn't a waste of time. But even after we had already been mistreated suffered, we had courage. We had the boldness in our God to speak. Paul was never ashamed of the gospel, we know. He was only ever bold about it no matter where he was, no matter how he was being treated. For him, he had boldness to speak the gospel even though he had been surrounded by much opposition. If there's a tolerance for us right now, from our, in our day, from our society, that we can be Christians and we can say the things that we want to say. If there has been a tolerance, guys, that's fading. I, think, I don't know if I've told you, but I used to think that um, 
probably nobody in my generation would probably go to jail in the United States for preaching the gospel. I think just even in the last five years, my opinion on that has changed. I think you might see people in your own church in your lifetime go to jail because they are haters. And you don't have to leave the country to go find that. It's going to happen right here. Um, Paul had boldness in the face of great hostility. He's He's a shining example for all ages of gospel ministers. Can you imagine Christian fathers standing at the door having their children being taken from them because they're abusing their children because they actually tell their children that they are sinners in need of repentance? Don't lose courage in the face of opposition. What is gospel ministry? Number seven, gospel ministry must flow from the truth and from pure motives. Verse three, Paul now starts to transition towards a broader point that pleasing God is really the whole focal point of the gospel ministry. It's the focus of the content that you speak and it's the focus of how you carry out gospel ministry. But he starts by saying where it is not sourced. Verse three, Gospel ministry does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. He says, our exhortation does not come from error. Gospel ministry can't be sourced out of error. The the content matters. And, verse 3, it also can't be marked by impurity in the life of the one preaching. It can't be marked by deceit. It can't have a bait and switch style to it. Where you're trying to draw them in by lifting up one thing. Only to later find out that something else is the real agenda to get them in. So what is gospel ministry? Gospel ministry must flow from the truth, not from error. And it must flow from purity of life or pure motive. Not only is the source of the water pure, but the faucet it comes out of has to be pure. That's what he's saying. The source is pure, it's truth. The faucet or the hose is pure, it's it's the life. Number eight, gospel ministry concerns itself with God's approval alone. God's approval alone. Um, Verse four, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even those apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Do you notice these key statements? Look at these things. We have been approved by God. That's a good thing to think about in regards to gospel ministry. That we're pleasing God who examines our hearts. That's a good thing to have in mind when you think about gospel ministry. God is witness, verse 5. That's a good thing to think about as you're carrying out gospel ministry. God's watching. That's the set of eyes on me that I need to be most aware of. Paul says he's an apostle of Christ. He was sent from Messiah Jesus. Do you see how Paul views gospel ministry? He is concerned most with God, with God's eye of approval, with God's pleasure on him, with God's testing of him. But the first idea there in verse 4, um, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. It's the idea of being tested or being refined so that he can be entrusted with the gospel. 
a little <laughs> statement I like that helps me think of that is, is tested to be entrusted. That's what Paul says. We were tested for the purpose of being entrusted with the gospel. That's what gospel ministry is all about. Let God refine you. Let God burn off the impurities of your life so that he can entrust you with the gospel. He's not doing that to punish you and to shame you and make you feel stupid. He's doing it so that you might be the pure faucet you need to so that the gospel can come out of you. God was pleased to employ Paul in gospel ministry. It was God's set of eyes on him that mattered more than anything. God sees what Paul is all about. And, and, and look here. We don't speak as if we're trying to please men. That's not gospel ministry, guys. If you're trying to please people, you're trying to say the things that stroke them and make them feel good and trying to get them to please you. Look at verse five. We never came with flattering speech. You're not gospel ministry is not flattering sinners. Gospel ministry is not a pretext for greed. It's not I'm going to get something from this if I if I if I draw you in. Gospel ministry is not seeking glory, verse 6, from men. Again, I feel in many ways we're describing the megachurch in the United States. Not all of them, of course, but it's just a striking characteristic of whose set of eyes do you want and are you most concerned with in your ministry as you preach the gospel outside your home and to others, even in your home, but because we're thinking about the (coughs) discipline outside the household. It's God's eyes upon us that matter the most. So gospel ministry concerns itself with God's approval alone. Number nine, gospel ministry knows how to be gentle. Verse seven, but we proved to be, do you see how over and over he's talking about what he was like when he was with them? What he wasn't like, why he did what he did, what what didn't motivate him? This is one of the most uh, extensive descriptions of what a gospel minister looks like and therefore what gospel ministry looks like. Um, Verse 7, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Um, Gospel ministry needs to know when to be gentle. Can I just give you a little snapshot here of um, the diversity that ministry will require I'm going to give you some different passages to turn and look at with me here. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. Watch this. You need to be be a pretty diversified gospel minister. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another Only there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Cursed to hell. That's what a gospel minister said. I said before, so I'll say it again. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? Would you even say such a thing to men if you were trying to please men? Paul shows that you need to be pretty diversified to be able to say, you know what, that message is damning. That message is damning. Um, 
Chapter 2, verse 11 of Galatians. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Gospel ministry at times, you need to be diversified enough that you are able to um, oppose somebody to their face. Why? Because prior to coming, prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision, the Jews. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. That was Paul's missionary companion on his first missionary journey. And when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? In public, in the presence of all, he said that. There needs to be a, you need to be able to have the ability at times to be able to confront something publicly. Um, You have to be very diversified in your, uh, we're talking about knowing how to be gentle, and we're going to, get back to that here in a minute but I just want to show you that there's there's not a um, one flavor only in gospel ministry that it's just gentle it's also not being a hammer all the time okay we'll, we'll look at this look at chapter 3 verse 1 in Galatians you foolish Galatians have, who has bewitched you before whose Jesus, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified he called them foolish um Chapter 4, verse 19. Galatians is full of examples of Paul. Watch this one. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I wish I, I wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Galatians 4, 19 and 20. Um, perplexed. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Watch Paul adapt to this situation as a gospel minister. Therefore, Philippians 4, verses 1 and following. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy uh, and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, indeed, true commandion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also... Um, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life rejoice in the Lord always and again I will say rejoice let your gentle spirit be known to all men the Lord is near what gentleness he's able to speak in the face of that controversy that was a different kind of um, uh, controversy or uh, what I'm looking for just trouble that he took on a different tone in that one flexibility how about 1 Corinthians chapter 4? I just want you to see the diversity of what's needed in gospel ministry. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 14. I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In other words, you're, you're believers today because I preached the gospel to you. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but I'll find out their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? 
Do you see that? It was possible that gospel ministry might mean that he's going to come with a rod. There's times in gospel ministry where it requires a rod. There's times in gospel ministry where it requires love and a spirit of gentleness. And that's not to say that a rod is not loving, right? It's a different expression of love, but here we mean primarily by love and a spirit of gentleness, the non-use of a rod. How about Titus 1.11? You remember we're talking about this as we've been going through? These men must be silenced. Gospel ministry requires an ability to just shut down wrong doctrine. Verse 13 of chapter 1 in Titus, reprove them severely. Chapter 2, verse 15 in Titus, um, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Can you imagine even being in a situation where you would be told by your mentor, okay, don't let anybody disregard what you're going to say to them. Not one. I mean, that requires a tone and a demeanor and a, and a, a fortitude for ministry that you, you just, hopefully not every day is like that. Chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 in Titus. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Scott's going to teach a lesson on this later in the year. Chapter 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Okay, what does everybody get from you? Patience. Okay, but what do the unruly in that everyone get? They get a warning. And what do the faint-hearted get? They get encouragement. And what do the weak get? help. Gospel ministry needs to focus in, this is going to be Scott's whole lesson, I'm not going to steal his thunder on this, but gospel ministry says, I, I need to examine the people carefully to know who I'm dealing with so that I know to give them the right thing. You do not want to encourage the unruly. For us, encouragement means just a general exhortation, but that's not what it means. You encourage the one who's maybe fearful of doing the right thing or is trying to do it, but is unsure, and you want to Give them courage to keep doing it. They're on the right track. Maybe they're hesitant. They're just starting. That's encouragement. For one who is unruly, who's undisciplined, who's kind of just rebellious, they need to be warned. And you don't go to the faint-hearted and what? Admonish them. I mean, gospel ministry requires that you are able to read people, understand who they are, and then adapt to them to give them what they need. Now, back in all full circle. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. We prove to be gentle among you. Gospel ministry knows how to be gentle. It requires you to be able to know when you need to be gentle. Listen, in gospel ministry, guys, you're going to need everything in your toolbox from a hammer and a chisel to a polishing cloth. Because there's going to be sometimes you're going to need to take out something with iron and put it to a hard knot and start whacking on it. And there's going to be other times where you're going to need to take out your polishing cloth on a heart and just softly polish it up. <clears throat> and you have to be able to know how to do from one end of the spectrum to the other. Welcome to parenting. Welcome to parenting. Right? From a chisel and a hammer to a polishing cloth. Gospel ministry, number 10, balances gospel proclamation and selfless love, verses 8 and 9. Gospel ministry isn't only about theological proclamation of truth. It absolutely is. 
it does come in words. Watch Paul hear what he says um, in verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives. Because you had become very dear to us. You become very dear to us. Gospel ministry also shows concern for the rebel through selfless acts of love. Gospel ministry concerns itself with people, not just proclamation. Actually really loving people, deeply loving people. I love these statements in here. Verse 8, fond affection. Having so fond an affection. Um, You became very dear to us. We imparted our lives to you. Paul's gospel ministry was heavy on both of those. Proclamation of the soundest doctrine ever. And you're very affectionate. I'm very affectionate towards you. You become very dear to me. Whenever um, I, I'm asked by, I, I can remember a, a young man coming to me saying, I really want to go to seminary. I just want to, I just want to preach the gospel. I, did the, I just want to preach the word. And, he, and that was kind of the focus of what he was telling me. And it wasn't all that he was thinking, but it was what was kind of caught his eye and made him want to go to seminary. And I remember saying to him, do you, do you love people? Because guess what your week's going to be filled with? It's going to be filled with both. You have to be able to balance both. But you're going to go from your study, and then you're going to sit with people who need that you need to have fond affection for. People who are going to become very dear to you. People that you're going to want to impart your life to, not just the gospel to. Um, gospel ministry balances proclamation of selfless love. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There's an example of how Paul balanced his love for them. The first part of verse 9 is we, he labored in love for them in such a way that he didn't want to ever be a hardship or a burden to them. And at the same time, he, verse 9, proclaimed to them the gospel. So was he a proclaimer of the truth and of the gospel? Yes. Did he love them? Yes, to the extent that he didn't even want to burden them. If he had to stay up late all night working and making tents so that he didn't have to be a burden to them financially, he did so. Lastly, Oh, but first, do you know which kind of guy you are? If those are two poles where truth proclaimer and I just love people. If those are like the two poles that you have to have both of them in your life, do you know which one you gravitate more towards? You need to be able to assess where your strengths are and you need to be able to assess where your weaknesses are. Some guys are just great at just getting into a life and just loving on that person big time. And it might be more difficult for them to open their mouths and actually say, you know what, I, can, I need to say this to you. And other guys are more on the, uh, you know, they're listening to what's going on and they've got already a sermon figured out in their mind of what needs to be communicated to them and it's truth and it's good, but whether or not they're going to roll up their sleeves and invest in that life long term is, is another thing. And you need to know which one you are if you're either of those. And you need to be able to try to always be fighting to strike a balance there. And lastly, gospel ministry requires excellent behavior from all. Gospel ministry demands above reproach character from Paul first. Look at verse 10. You're witnesses, and so is God. At what? What did you see? How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy... 
you know how godly we lived before you. So gospel ministry required that the minister live that way, the one who's serving the gospel to them be godly. But, verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, so much there that we'll, we're not able to get to, but um, gospel ministry is also concerned for the excellent behavior of those who believe the gospel. Um, true gospel ministry doesn't let anyone remain comfortable who says, oh yeah, I believe, but then doesn't want to live godly. You guys understand that? Um, gospel ministry, true gospel ministry, doesn't let anybody to say, I believe, yeah, yeah, I believe, but whether or not my life has changed or is continuing to change doesn't really matter. That, that's, not a, that's not true gospel ministry. So here are 11 descriptions to soak in so that you can think rightly about what gospel ministry truly is. They're from Paul's descriptions of his gospel ministry um, as he interacted with the Thessalonians. Gospel ministry reveals God's prior electing love. It results in fearless, joyful, and exemplary imitators. Gospel ministry is multiplied quickly by new believers. Gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. Gospel ministry results in a desire for God above all else. Gospel ministry doesn't lose courage in the face of opposition. Number seven, it must flow from truth and pure motives. It concerns itself with God's approval alone. Number eight. Number nine, it knows how to be gentle. Ten, it balances gospel proclamation and selfless love. Number eleven, it requires an excellent behavior from all. We used to take two weeks, two meetings, and cover that. And... Um, there's a lot more to get out of that than what we're able to get today. But there's the turning of the corner into the third discipline in the ministry. Okay, So heart, your household, because what kind of men you prove to be among them for their sake matters. Right? Okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples that you leave in the Bible of Paul's ministry. He's an apostle, and there are some things about being an apostle that just will never translate over to us. Um, but, Lord, there are many things, many characteristics and principles in his life and in his ministry that we can look at and we can cling to and we can strive for. And I pray, God, that you would help these men. Lord, um, do not let them play leapfrog over their hearts or their homes just to get to ministry. Men become disasters to their own souls and to the church when they do that. But Lord, as you are giving them um, small victories in their hearts and in their homes, oh Lord, bless their ministry to others as they step into the lives of others in this church and beyond this church into the community. Lord, bless their ministry. May it look like gospel ministry should. Help them to be the right kind of men as they preach the gospel and as they impart their lives to sinners. And do this, Lord, for the sake of the sinner who would only face your wrath and your judgment if they did not repent and believe. But do it also for your glory. Glorify yourself. Reveal your electing love in this world through these kinds of men who are godly, who have power, who rely on your spirit, and who are fully convinced that they must run behind enemy lines with your gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.